Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, some great ideas for holiday gift-giving. Books about Florida history and culture are popular gifts, and we'll talk with some of our favorite authors with new releases. It's the small adventure of daily hunting, fishing trips, visits, the kind of thing that people do on holiday. On vacation. We'll also discuss some old favorites, including the classic Florida novel, A Land Remembered, by Patrick Smith. Florida was eaten alive with mosquitoes, snakes, alligators, bears, panthers, wolves, swamps to eat. Oh, it was some kind of tough. Great books for the holidays ahead on Florida Frontiers. Some of our favorite things here at Florida Frontiers are books about our state's history and culture. With holiday shopping underway in earnest, we have some suggestions for some great gifts, all of which are available online at myfloridahistory.org. A trip to Florida for health and sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parker's Condit, was written 154 years ago, but was not published until now. Morris O'Sullivan, professor of English at Rollins College, and Wengxin Zhang, archivist at the Olin Library, edited the handwritten manuscript and provide historical and literary context in an introduction and afterward. O'Sullivan explains how this lost novel was rediscovered. The discovery of the manuscript was really a wonderful adventure, and it was a cross-cultural adventure. The manuscript was written in 1855, and in 1955, Frederick Dow, who was also a major donor for the Florida Historical Society, gave the manuscript and a few others to Rollins in honor of his friend A.J. Hanna, the great Rollins and Florida historian. The manuscript was known but never noticed in the archives. And when Wengshan Zhang became our archivist a couple of years ago, he started looking through our collection to see what we have. Rollins has a very old archives, some claim one of the oldest archives in Florida. 
And among the discoveries that he made was this manuscript. About two years ago, he asked me to take a look at it to see whether or not it might be worth trying to do something with. I read it and realized how valuable it was. But it's really like almost any of those objects that is always there, but we never notice. A trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, is a coming-of-age novel about a teenage boy. The book is historically significant as one of the first Florida novels ever written. Morris O'Sullivan. Probably the most significant element of the book is that it's the first novel that I would call a domestic novel about Florida. All of the other novels are adventure novels. And even though there's a good deal of adventure in this, it's the small adventure of daily hunting, fishing trips, visits, the kind of thing that people do on holiday, on vacation. Earlier novels are about the great pirates and the great battles that occurred in Florida. Um, James Fenimore Cooper's Jack Tear, for example, is about the Mexican-American War and about a, a contemporary pirate trying to sell arms to the Mexicans and then kidnap a beautiful young maiden and flee to Mexico. Subjects that try and deal with a very large scope. This is a fairly subdued novel about a young man, 17-year-old George Morton, who comes to Florida suffering for, from ill health and psychological problems and emotional problems because of his father's death. And he recovers by entering into nature. The historical novel Saving Home tells the story of the English siege of St. Augustine in 1702. The story is told through the eyes of a nine-year-old girl and her friends. Fourth grade is when many students are first introduced to Florida history, and Judy Lindquist, the author of Saving Home, teaches fourth grade in Orlando. As a fourth grade teacher, and actually as a, an educator in general, a lot of us use historical fiction to teach social studies concepts. And, um, and I have always wanted to go that route. And being a fourth grade teacher teaching Florida history, there is not that much historical fiction out there set in historical Florida. Um, and being a fourth grade teacher, we take that field trip to St. Augustine. So St. Augustine history is kind of the cornerstone of Florida history. And as I was doing research myself, preparing myself to teach my students, um, I started reading about the siege of 1702. And it's a fascinating story in and of itself. And there, after I started doing research about it, I started trying to find resources to bring into the classroom to teach my students, and it was extremely limited. So that's kind of the, the core of what prompted me to write Saving Home. Um, I also thought it was a fascinating story to tell from a child's point of view. Although written with younger readers in mind, people of all ages enjoy Saving Home. The exciting, fast-paced story also contains some important themes. Judy Lindquist. Some of the themes um, in the story, um, obviously family, um, faith, um, places to call home and how home is not just a building and not just, you know, four walls and a roof kind of thing and how, um, how 
being persistent, having having belief in yourself and in the people around you, how important that is to getting through challenging times like the siege of 1702. Um, and the children in the story um, all experience the siege on a very personal level. They're all impacted very personally um, in different ways, and they each have to kind of overcome those challenges um, to deal with it and to move on in a positive way. 450 years ago, Don Tristan de Luna led an expedition to what is now Pensacola, Florida. John Appleyard, author of the historical novel De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, has been celebrating de Luna's legacy for 50 years. Well, I became, I became a part of the de Luna story, I guess that's the right way to put it, when I was chosen in the, in the summer of 1958 to become the state director of the Florida Quadricentennial Celebration, which was to be held the summer of 59, marking the 400th anniversary of De Luna's arrival here. Uh, quite honestly, I, while I had a history degree, I had no, in, no background at all on either Pensacola or Florida. I had been in Pensacola about 10 years. And so immediately we were, we were set forth with the precious little money and uh, about eight and a half months to create what was literally a, uh, a, a small, a mini world's fair of history. And the, this was, all of this was put together, of course, with the assistance uh, and, and great cooperation of the Spanish government, the British government, the French government, a lot of help from the people in Mexico, and of course the Florida Historical Society and a number of other resources here uh, contributed to that. John Appleyard's book, De Luna, founder of North America's first colony, is a fictionalized account of the attempted settlement effort based on all of the factual information available, including letters, journals, and official depositions. The Deluna Expedition, all 1,550 members of it, were sent here as a, a grand design by the Spanish in the middle of the 1550s. Their design was to seal off North America against in, intrusion or colonization by the French and the English, both of whom were very interested at this time, but having just passed through a long, bloody, dynastic war, were not prepared financially or otherwise to make a, a commitment at that time. So the, the Spanish put together a grand plan and uh, chose a man who had uh, military experience, who was a, a key figure in government, who, uh, whose family was, uh, was financially able to, to fund a part of the expedition, and he put the, they put together this plan, which was to put, assemble in, on the eastern shore of Mexico and come with a large fleet and land here at what they then called Oshus, which we now, of course, call Pensacola. And they were to, they were to place here about one-third of their company. And the remaining two-thirds would march north to the center of what we now call Alabama, to where the Coosa Indian Nation existed. And the Spanish had had prior uh, contact with the Coosans through the work of Hernando de Soto. And the, the goal was now for De Luna to place a small way station there, uh, kind of a halfway point between Oshus and what the third colony was to be, which was to be located about where Cape Hatteras is on the Atlantic coast today. And the grand plan was, as soon as the Atlantic and Gulf uh, colonies were established, then they would be reinforced uh, by more people coming from Spain and from Mexico, and they would spread north and south on the Atlantic, east and west along the Gulf, and then thus literally seal the continent off from the French and the Spanish. And that was the plan, and probably would might very well have succeeded had the hurricane of uh, the 19th of uh, August 1559 literally devastated the uh, the supply chain and put them, well, the, 15, uh, the survivors of the 1500 struggled to, to stay alive up until the month of uh, May in 1561. Stetson Kennedy was head of the Florida Writers Unit on Folklore, Oral History, and Socio-Ethnic Studies for the Works Progress Administration between 1937 and 1942. 
That experience led to his classic Florida book, Palmetto Country, which was recently republished by the Florida Historical Society Press with 80 historic photographs never before included with the work. Well, it was the Great Depression for one thing, and I didn't have a job along with tens of millions of other Americans. And、uh, at the same time, President Roosevelt had organized something called the Federal Writers Project. And I thought this would be an opportunity for a 21 year old、uh, to start a writing career. So I signed up for the Florida Writers Project. And in a short time, they did、uh, elevate me to the, that position. I was wearing three hats.、Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, as a matter of fact, was、uh, my, I was her boss. She was not an easy one to boss, I can tell you. She fortunately worked out of her home in Eatonville, and I was in Jacksonville. So it was like that. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, Stetson Kennedy traveled the towns and rural backwoods of Florida, collecting oral histories, songs, and stories from a diverse cross section of people. Actually, it was a precursor to the、uh, wire recorder came、uh, next、uh, before the tape recorder. And this recorder was like a, a coffee table, except it took two or three good men to lift it. When we wanted to go out on the railroad tracks or on the pogey fishing boats,、uh, we had to get some manpower. And it was、uh, on the tracks, it was powered by two automobile batteries. So that's, that's what we had to work with. I called it the thing. Stetson Kennedy's interviews with cracker cowboys, Cuban cigar makers, African American turpentine workers, Greek sponge divers, and many others celebrate Florida's rich cultural diversity. It was one of the first volumes in the American Folkways series, edited by Erskine Caldwell. And、uh, we really pioneered in oral history. No one had ever heard of it at, up at that time, talking about 1935 and 1936. I recall here in Titusville,、uh, I, I was interviewing an elderly black man. This is a later period. And I、um, happened to mention the moonshot. And he said, You don't believe that stuff, do you? And、uh, I said, well, You know,、uh, he says, It's just some more of that BS the government puts out. <laughs> It was an exciting、uh, you know, field to be in. We, we had a lot of fun. Like, like kids on a treasure hunt, really. The books Palmetto Country by Stetson Kennedy, DeLuna, founder of North America's first colony by John Appleyard, Saving Home by Judy Lindquist, and A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, all make great holiday gifts and are available online at myfloridahistory.org. Just click on Shop.
This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If books about war are among the favorite things of someone on your shopping list, you may want to consider the book Hitler's Soldiers in the Sunshine State: German POWs in Florida by Robert D. Billinger. Janie Gould talks with a German POW held in Florida. Florida hosted 10,000 visitors during World War II who weren't really tourists. They were German POWs, and they were held in detention camps all across the state. The largest was at Camp Blanding near Stark. Rupert Metzroth is retired now, and he lives in Martin County. But in 1944, he was an 18-year-old German soldier. He was captured by the Allies in Europe, shipped to the U.S. with hundreds of other POWs, and put on a train. None of them knew where they were going. In the morning, we woke up and there was a sun going up on to the left of us. That meant we were heading south. And it took three more days slowly. And we saw from the cars on the stations that we went through Virginia and then North Carolina, South Carolina. And after that, my geographical knowledge left. We ended up in Camp Blending. We were greeted by our fellow prisoners, which used to belong to the Africa Corps. Rupert's first job at Camp Blanding was to be an interpreter in the shoe repair and tailoring shop. There wasn't much for him to do. I was bored. I was starting to fool around with the sewing machines, and I realized if I put a propeller on that spinning wheel, it works like a fan. From some cardboard boxes, I fashioned a wheel, and from that wheel, I cut a whole propeller, attached it to the flywheel of the sewing machine. The faster I sewed, the cooler you got. So what I did is I fashioned wheel、uh, propellers to every one of those sewing machines, and I got a little note the next evening where the ladies thanked me and they left a dime. I could buy a coke. That was a long time ago too. Ten cents for a coke. Five cents for a coke. We had、uh, our own PX. We had a church. We had a barber shop. We had two huge hangers. In one of the hangers, there was a theater group, and on the outside of the hangers, every month they showed a movie. We had to sit outside. A German language movie? No, all Americans. I saw all the roads. Pictures with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Hedy Lamarr, yeah. And then, of course, we were shown a lot of propaganda movies too. You, you mean U.S. US movies? Yeah. We wouldn't call them propaganda movies. <laughs> no, <laughs> but to us, for instance, we saw the movie Thirty Minutes <laughs> Over Tokyo, and we were rooting for the Americans. During your time at Camp Blanding, did you get any news from home? We sent a postcard in Livorno, Italy, already. That went through the Red Cross, and my parents already knew in December 1944 that、uh, I had become a prisoner. And my mother was relieved because everything was going downhill at that time. We could write a letter once a month. The paper we were writing on was treated, so we could not use invisible ink. Were you in the camp when Germany surrendered and Hitler committed suicide? Yes. What we were wondering about is what's going to happen to us when the war was over. There was a lot of hatred in the American press against us, especially since the news about the concentration camps. I personally didn't know anything about those concentration camps. First of all, I was too young; I was not interested in it. And then, when I was drafted, we didn't have any news in the front line. So it was news to me what was going on there. It came out in the American press, starting、mm-hmm. about when? Forty-four. Yeah. What did you think of that? Mixed feelings. First of all, we had the feeling that a German wouldn't do something like that. We still thought it was a propaganda against us, and for quite a while we just refused to believe it. Do you、When、believe I, it now? Oh yeah, definitely. 
I'm very touched with some of the pictures. The worst I see is when they showed little children. And that was awful to me, you know, that somebody of my own country could have done something like that. But in the meantime, 1946, we were sent to England. They told us we were going to go home, but uh, <laughs> ended up in England. Embarked on a train and ended up from February in Florida to February in northern Scotland. <laughs> Rupert Metzroth finally returned to Germany in 1948. In 1954, he emigrated to the U.S. with his wife and son. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. The Robert Billinger book, Hitler's Soldiers in the Sunshine State, German POWs in Florida, is published by the University Press of Florida. It's available for purchase online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In the years since its publication in 1984, the novel A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith has become an international bestseller. Bill Dudley talks with Patrick Smith about a time when Florida was one of America's last frontiers. If I'd had my choice back in those days of which state to come into and expect to live a long time, I would have chosen the Wild West. Because Florida was eaten alive with mosquitoes, snakes, alligators, bears, panthers, wolves, swamps, the heat. Oh, it was some kind of tough place. Patrick Smith talks about the Florida frontier. Smith is the author of the classic novel A Land Remembered, a book that's been used in Florida's high schools for many years. Now it's been edited and abridged for younger students in a new edition published by Pineapple Press. No one had ever attempted to put more than a century into one novel, and that one covers 110 years. It opens in 1858 and ends in 1968. And there's just so much that went on during a long period of time like that. It makes it very difficult to write because everything changes. When you start, there's no such thing as electricity. There are no automobiles. There are no refrigerators. There are no roads. You have to be very, very careful to get everything right. A Land Remembered is the story of the McIvey family, who leave Georgia and move south, homesteading in the region around present-day Kissimmee, which Smith says is about as far south as most immigrants felt comfortable in settling. It was the most logical stopping point for a family coming south out of Georgia the way they did in the wagon, you know. In south Florida back in 1858 was just you know, like parts of Africa. It was just totally unknown. No one knew what was down there. Nobody lived in the interior of South Florida back then, and they just didn't want to venture any further. Like other settlers, the McIveys live by subsistence farming and running free-ranging cattle. In researching the book, Smith says he was amazed to learn about the numbers of wild cows left over from the days of Florida's Spanish occupation. It was a surprise to find so many herds of wild cattle in this state back in the 19th century. 
free for the taking. Go out in the boondocks and the swamps and the woods and round them up. They didn't belong to anyone. They were just wild cattle. You know, that's, that's the main role that Florida played in the Civil War, supplying beef, tallow, hides, and salt to the Confederate Army. But soon, in the aftermath of the war, thousands of new settlers pour into the state. The vast majority of the people who came in here as settlers came out of Georgia because Georgia was so torn up by that Civil War. You know, a lot of people had, had lost their houses, they, they lost their farms, they didn't have any way to make a living, so they just packed up what they had and headed down to Florida to see what they could find down here and start a new life. The way the novel tracks the changes in values of each successive generation of McIvies, from dirt-poor settlers to wealthy landowners, reflects the changes in attitudes of Floridians in a state evolving from wilderness to concrete. Well, you know, I wanted to entertain with that novel as well as enlighten, but I did want to get a, across a real message about man's relationships to nature and animals and the environment. One of the things that changed so much about uh, people over a period of time, there was a period of time when, when somebody would take from nature only what they needed, only. If they needed a deer to eat, you know, they'd kill it or something like that, but they didn't go out just sport shooting and kill 14 deer, you know, to say, hey, look what I did. And there's a scene in the land remembered after Zeck McIvey has seen, you know, people fighting over fences, fighting over phosphate and killing things. And he reflects and he says, maybe animals are smarter than men, taking only what they need to survive. And then he says, well, you know, maybe it's man who will destroy the earth and take the animals down with him. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm preaching, but I'm just relating what the pioneer way was. They took from the land only what they needed. If you read that novel, the latter part of it gives you a pretty good blueprint on how to destroy nature. Because the last one of the MacIvers, old Saul, he did it. Patrick Smith wrote his first novel in 1953, moving to Florida in 1966. The success of a land remembered, Smith believes, means people have an interest in knowing more about the history of the state they live in. But has the novel changed the way we look at natural Florida? You know, I kind of think it has, because, you know, I've had all kinds of people in the legislature and governors and everybody else, you know, claim that that's their favorite novel about Florida. And I've even had a lot of developers, you know, that love that book and and they're the kind that don't push down trees anymore. They leave them standing. And one, one time, named a subdivision of land remembered. <laughs> Author Patrick Smith. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. All of the books discussed on this week's program are available online at myfloridahistory.org. Just click on Shop. Have a great week and join us next time for Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.